Welcome to the Shadron Berean Church Podcast, where you'll find some of the latest teachings from Shadron Berean Church in Shadron, Nebraska. We are a loving community of believers growing in God's grace in Christ together. The heartbeat of our church is to have deep roots in the Word of God and to bear fruit by passionately applying it to our lives by His power for His glory. And we thank you for joining us. hope that by now in our study on the life of Moses, that Moses is starting to look a lot less like Charlton Heston from the Ten Commandments or the Prince of Egypt from that, uh, I think it was Steven Spielberg movie. You know, I hope that more and more as we go through the book of Exodus and we look at, look at this man and his character and his life and his struggles and all of that, we, we learn that he's a lot more like us than than we might think at first. You know, he, he looks a lot more like you and me. Because uh, when Scripture records history, you know, it, it tends to revolve around uh, an individual like Moses or maybe David or Peter or Paul. You know, it's just the Bible's a personal book and God is a personal God. And when God writes history, his story, he writes, he writes it revolving around individual people because people are part of making history. Right? We're making history today as, as we speak. But because uh, God has used some of these individuals in the Bible extraordinarily at times, and because sometimes the Bible you know, only records the highlights of history, uh, we sometimes feel like these people are cut from a different cloth than us, you know, that, that we could never be used of God like they were. And so if we think that way, that's a problem because I'm not going to be as inclined to give my life to God and see how you can, he can use me as well if I think these folks were cut from a different superior cloth. And so that's sort of what we're going to talk about this morning as we open God's word. Remember from last week we saw Moses' uh, first confrontation with Pharaoh. And uh, Moses it seemed to think that Pharaoh was just going to be nice and generous, that he was going to release the Hebrews, the nation of Israel, with his blessing, right? Oh, sure, yeah, go out into the wilderness, worship. That's great. Now, no, Pharaoh might as well have laughed in his face. He, he laughed out loud. He said, uh, this, this Pharaoh, remember, he, remember he's viewed as the incarnation of the you know, three primary deities in Egypt. And uh, his comment, him thinking himself God, he said, who is the Lord? You know, very sarcastic, right? Who's, who's the Lord? And he in response to Moses, increases the labors on the Hebrew people. Rather than letting them go, he increases their workload, and they uh, are suffering, and they curse Moses and Aaron. And that led Moses, at least, to despair. Uh, He was questioning God's goodness. He was questioning God's calling on his life. Uh, However... Uh, it was kind of like a roller coaster last week, right? Moses, we left off with Moses being reassured 
that God is going to do what he said he was going to do. That God would be with him, enabling him to do his will. God said, uh, if you look at it right there in chapter 7, verse 1, See, I make you as God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. Basically, I will be with you. And so uh, what we see now as we come to the, this, these next several chapters with the ten plagues, is you see Egypt's gods represented by Pharaoh versus Yahweh represented by Moses. It's kind of like a duel here, right? An old western shootout, right? Good guys versus bad guys. Uh, and maybe you think of a boxing ring. But we're going to see um, who is more powerful, um, Pharaoh or Yahweh, right? Egypt's gods or, or the God of Israel, So let's look at verses 8 through 13 here of chapter 7. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, uh, When Pharaoh speaks to you, saying, Work a miracle, then you shall say to Pharaoh, Take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron came to Pharaoh, and thus they did, just as the Lord had commanded. And Aaron threw his staff down before Pharaoh, Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. And this, then Pharaoh also called for the wise men and the sorcerers, and they also, the magicians of Egypt, did the same with their secret arts. For each one threw down his staff, and they turned into serpents, but Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Yet Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had said. So first thing we see here, uh, in, your, in your outline, is a warning to Pharaoh. Um, a warning to Pharaoh. Most don't consider this a plague. It's just a warning. It's a preview of coming attractions, basically. God tells Moses and Aaron to confront Pharaoh again, to prove their intentions by working this miracle with the staff. And notice uh, what it says in verse 10. I think this is key here. It says, They did just as the Lord had commanded I don't think we want to miss that because last time we saw Moses, where was he? He was in despair, right? He's on his face. He's weeping. He's arguing with God. He's questioning God. He's making excuses. He's giving up on his calling. And now we see him exercising immediate loving obedience to God. You know, that's, it's a beautiful picture to me. I think it shows us that Moses has uh, some growth and he's got some trust I see some growth in Moses' spiritual life, and um, don't get the, or don't miss this either. It's because of his obedience to God, stepping out in faith, right? Because he doesn't know how this is all going to play out. We do. We know the end of the story. He doesn't. The, ex- the plagues haven't taken place yet. And so he's stepping out in faith here, in obedience to God's call, and that, and God is going to use him now in incredible ways because of his faith, because of his obedience. And so, again, uh, the staff is thrown down. It turns into a serpent, just like before. Um, however, Pharaoh's sorcerers, actually, his uh, priests, the priests of Egypt's gods, we might call them, also turned their staffs into serpents. And since there's you know, several varieties of cobras in Egypt, they just seem to be fascinated with obsessed with cobras you know the snake there's a lot of them in Egypt and and uh, different kinds and you know they they even make some of their gods in the image of cobras um, 
just saying, it was probably a cobra. Like the, the staff turned into a cobra. Pharaoh, remember, he even wears one on his head. And you can see there a different uh, picture, even an artifact there of a cobra idol, right? It's a snake goddess uh, named Mertzeger. But uh, uh, basically, Pharaoh was to be feared much like a cobra is to be feared. I don't know about you, but I don't want to go near a cobra, you know? Uh, it's something to fear. And Pharaoh is to be feared. And it's interesting, too, that uh, they've discovered uh, different writing, uh, a certain writing where the Pharaoh, upon assuming the throne, uh, taking the throne, would pledge himself to a serpent spirit. And I don't know about you, but it sounds, like, sounds a lot like an old foe from the garden, uh, garden Genesis chapter 3 to me, right? So there's some dark forces here. But 2 Timothy 3.8 reveals the name, uh, names of Pharaoh's two main sorcerers, uh, priests, we might call them. Uh, this was probably passed down through Jew- Jewish tradition, but they're, they're, they're called Janus and Jambres. Okay? And they're used uh, in 2 Timothy 3 as an example of the kinds of false teachers that would come and oppose truth with counterfeit miracles. False miracles, and, and, and Timothy says that's what it's going to be like in the last days, you know, right before Jesus' return. There's going to be, uh, even in the church age, right, there's, there's, there's a day coming where there's going to be a lot of false miracles, signs, and wonders that aren't from God. And Second Timothy says they're going to be stopped, and their um, folly is going to be made evident to all. And some speculate whether the sorcerers were you know, illusionists or snake charmers or if they were in touch with, you know, real dark powers, whether they were really doing miracles or not. Because uh, apparently you can, you can paralyze a cobra and hold it there, you know. You could paralyze it like in the back of the head and it just, you hold it, you know, and it basically it just it goes straight. It goes limp basically and it looks like a staff, right? But you throw it down and it wakes up. Um, but Anyway, all that aside, and they're still doing that today over there, but um, um, some folks on the street might still do it. But um, I would guess, you know, D, right? All of the above. They're illusionists. They're, they're snake charmers. They are in touch with real dark powers. I think there's a, a little bit of everything going on there. But uh, Egyptian writings speak of their power, and Satan, we know too, can perform false miracles and signs and wonders. Uh, he's going to deceive many with his signs in, in, the, in the last days, Second Thessalonians says. But uh, let's, let's look at the main point here, and that is the powerful symbolism that is going on, right? By, by Moses' staff swallowing up uh, these other staffs. Uh, it's really a powerful picture. It's a warning of what is to come. Uh, it's basically saying that Yahweh is more powerful than Egypt, right? Um, And Yahweh is going to swallow up. He's going to devour Egypt and Egypt's gods. You know, he's going to swallow up the Egyptians. In fact, those those words that we see here where it says swallowed up, those same words are used to describe the sea swallowing up Pharaoh's army uh, right right at the exodus there. So, same words, same language. And the message is clear. Egypt must let Israel go or be swallowed up by Yahweh, be devoured by Yahweh. Pharaoh, though, 
um, he, he brushes off this warning, uh, this omen he would interpret it as probably. And uh, that's when we get into the ten plagues now. Uh, these ten plagues, the Bible calls them uh, miracles, signs, and wonders. However, uh, plague is not necessarily a bad term, I don't think. I would like to do more research on that sometime, figure out when did we start calling these plagues, you know, because the Bible calls them signs and wonders. But uh, I don't reject uh, plague. Plague seems like a decent term because these are, like a plague is a blow, right? It's a wound to someone. And, and that's what these are, 10 plagues, blow after blow after blow to Egypt. And uh, they're by far one of the greatest demonstrations of God's power in all of history. You have to think about that real quick. What we're reading about here is one of the greatest demonstrations of God's power in all of history. And that's why we're still talking about them today. <laughs> they're, they're the real deal. They really did happen. And, um, you know, if you think about it, there's only four great eras of plagues in the Bible. You've got the Exodus. You know, as far as like great, abundant miracles, there's the Exodus period. There is the days of Elijah. There is Jesus' ministry for a few years and then the apostles. And then there's... You know, the tribulation period where God is, again, doing signs and wonders. But you have to think about it. It's interesting to think about anyway is that the exodus and the tribulation, they're both the signs and wonders. Are, a lot of it's judgment, right? God's trying to get people's attention um, so that they can be saved. But uh, anyway, let's look at the first plague here, Niled, the Nile turning to blood, verses uh, 14 and, and onward. The Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is stubborn. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning just as he is going out to the water and position yourself to meet him on the bank of the Nile. And you shall take in your hand the staff that was turned into a serpent and you shall say to him, the Lord, the God of Hebrews, sent me to you saying, let my people go so that they may serve me uh, in the wilderness. But behold, you have not listened up to now. And so this is what the Lord says, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, I'm going to strike the water that is in the Nile with the staff that is in my hand, and it will be turned to blood. And then the fish that are in the Nile will die, the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will no longer be able to drink water from the Nile. And then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff, extend your hand over the waters, over the rivers, over the streams, over the pools, over the reservoirs of water so that they may become blood. And there will be blood through all the land of Egypt, both in containers of wood and in containers of stone. I imagine if they had Colgan machines, that water would turn to blood too, right? Um, Moses and Aaron, sorry to give you the heebie-jeebies this morning, probably. Uh, some of you got a weak stomach, but uh, Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded. There it is again. See that? And he lifted up the staff, and he struck the water that was in the Nile, and in the sight of Pharaoh, and in the sight of his servants, and all the water that was in the Nile was turned to blood. Then the fish that were in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, and, uh, so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. And the blood was through all the land of Egypt, but the soothsayer priests of Egypt did the same with their secret arts. And Pharaoh's heart was saddened, and he did not listen to them, just as the Lord had said. And then Pharaoh turned and went into his house with no concern. <laughs> he goes into his house with no concern even for this. And so all the Egyptians dug around the Nile for water to drink because they could not drink the water from the Nile. So they're digging in the sand on the banks of the Nile trying to get some water. 
But uh, interesting, right? Do you notice the, the, how it talks about the stench uh, of the Nile? Remember last week how Israelites were said to stink in Pharaoh's sight, right? You didn't want to stink before the gods because that was a sign of judgment. Well, now Egypt stinks, right? And they're going to stink when all the frogs die. They're going to stink when all the cattle die. Uh, who's odious now? You know what I'm saying? That's, you see that here. But uh, Pharaoh goes out to the Nile in the morning as he appears. That appears to be his habit. He's probably got some sort of ritual purposes. Remember uh, the Nile River and the sun? These were, these were associated with the gods. They were the great sustainers of life. And, uh, you know, in this desert wasteland, especially in any ancient times, right, life revolved around the rivers. The rivers were their fresh water. It was their lifeblood, you know, pun intended on that one. But transportation, you have to think, transportation, irrigation, drinking, washing, fishing, all of that comes from the river. And if something was wrong with the river in, a, in their society, according to their own literature, they saw it as a bad omen. They, they, it was a sign that God was angry and that they needed to amend their ways. And so something's got to be reeling through the Egyptians' minds. Something's definitely wrong when the Nile and all the waters in Egypt turn to blood, right? Uh, something's definitely wrong here when the source of life becomes a source of death. And um, the actions of his magicians, you know, to do the same thing, because they turn water to blood too, uh, whether that's fake or real, um, they do the miracle, and it basically reinforces Pharaoh's resolve to ignore the plague. Basically, oh, it's nothing special, right? My magicians can do it too, nothing to worry about. But it's interesting, right, how, how you go through the Exodus account, and it's like these, these magicians, they can't reverse any of the plagues, and they can't stop any of the plagues. All they can do is add to it. Uh, so they just make it worse. It doesn't make any sense other than, you know, Satan's not an innovator. Uh, Satan is a counterfeiter. He mimics. He can't add to it. He can only mimic it. And that's what Satan does. You know, he, he, he's, he always deceives by mimicking something God does, right? Like false Christs, the Antichrist, the false Messiah. Uh, he's just a counterfeiter. But now that we've, you know, kind of got a sample for what the plagues are like, I want to move through them quickly and then just look at the big picture. Because uh, remember, our focus is on the life of Moses. It's actually not on the Exodus itself. It's not on the plagues. Uh, though it is really hard for me to skip over such amazing literature. But um, it's such a great account. But uh, by focusing on the plague details, you, know, you can really get lost in them and then you'll miss the big picture and what the Exodus is really all about, and what God's doing. And uh, like they say, you can, you can miss the forest you know, by focusing on the trees. And that's not our, our task this morning. We're not going to focus on the trees. We're going to focus on the forest. But uh, uh, what you'll notice as you go through these plagues is they're going to increase in intensity. So you go from warning to misery to disaster to, to death. And Pharaoh goes from being unconcerned to a little angry, to a despairing, to completely mad. He's a madman. But the second plague is, is frogs. And uh, you, have a, uh, you have a chart on the last page of your notes, uh, this same slide here. But uh, this is, you know, frogs, you have to think about it. That's kind of humorous 
to me, I don't know about you, frogs just fill the land of Egypt. I mean, they're in their beds, they're in their kitchens, they're in their mixing bowls. I mean, you can picture the wives going to get the mixing bowl out of the cupboard and screaming, and the kids are laughing, right? And whatever, at least for a while, it had to be somewhat humorous. But, you know, they worshipped the frog as the fertility god. Um, and God, it's just interesting, right? Uh, Exodus twelve twelve says, I'll execute judgment against the gods of Egypt, Hey, God says, hey, you like frogs? You want to worship frogs? Here they are. They're in your bed, right? Uh, everywhere you go. And so um, it's interesting, right? It had to just create a lot of chaos. And remember, Pharaoh is supposed to be the sovereign in Egypt. He's supposed to control everything. Things just are totally out of control. He's obviously not sovereign. Who is? Yahweh. But the third plague is gnats. Uh, just imagine gnats, man, your nose. You, you ever been in the, like the backwoods and the mosquitoes are thick and you want to put a mask over your face like a net? Oh, man, you don't even want to breathe through your mouth because you're afraid you're going to breathe them in, right? You just imagine gnats getting in your nose, getting in your ears, that sort of thing. Um, and this is torture, right? Gnats can be torture. And, you know, what's significant here with this plague is that the magicians finally come up and say, we can't copy this one, Pharaoh. Right? We, we can't do this. They say to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. And so they finally admit there's a divine power at work that they can't match. Um, fourth plague is flies. Um, significant with this one is that the Israelites are now exempted from the plagues. Right? Remember the, 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 sorry, the, did I say Egyptians or Israelites? Israelites are exempted from the plagues. Because uh, the Israelites, they live up in the land of Goshen in the northern area of Egypt, in the Nile Delta. And uh, they've experienced the frogs, they've experienced the gnats, but now they don't experience the flies or anything else that goes on. Uh, they're exempt from it, so God begins to make a clear distinction between his people and those who aren't his people. And uh, those who aren't his people face God's wrath. And uh, remember too, while some of these are natural phenomenon. You know, like, nothing miraculous about the frogs, right? They come up every spring, they come out, whatever, the, the gnats, yeah, we have bug seasons, but, you know, it's not normal, okay? The intensity of these, uh, these signs, these plagues, the distinctions that God makes in them between Israel and Egypt, and then the timing factor, how these, these plagues begin and end at Moses' command, all tell us that these are not just natural things. These are supernatural works of God. Um, the fifth plague is livestock. All the Egyptian livestock die. This is uh, the first major economic disaster for the Egyptians. You've got the sixth plague, skin ulcers. That's boils and sores on the skin, right? Probably, you know, like Job scraping their pus with the pottery. It's just disgusting. But that's the first plague to strike the Egyptians personally, their, their very beings. And then the, the seventh plague is the hailstorm with intense lightning. And uh, oh, it's kind of interesting. I, I learned about ball lightning this week. Someone said, this might have been ball lightning in Egypt. Have you ever heard of that? Ball lightning? It's like, it's like I don't know. You'll have to look it up. There's a video on the news about it too. Uh, and just type in ball lightning. You'll find it. But uh, balls of fire basically is what they are. It's interesting. Uh, very rare. But... Think about this, not a single hailstone falls in Goshen. But whatever, you know, uh, was not uh, devoured by the hail, whatever was not turned dead brown by the hail, if there was any 
green blade of grass left, it was devoured with the eighth plague, with locusts. Locusts come through. And uh, it's at this point that Pharaoh's servants beg him to let Israel go. They're like, we just, the, all of Egypt's going to be destroyed if you don't let Israel go. And uh, it's around this time that Pharaoh starts to express some remorse. You know, a little bit, uh, yeah, just, you know, oh, no, like, I'm sorry, I've sinned against God, and, you know, forgive me, and I'll let Israel go. And then it, as soon as the pressure's off this guy, he's unrepentant again. I mean, it's just, the, any sign of repentance in this guy fades as soon as the pressure is off of him. And uh, he's trying to get Moses to compromise and all of that. But the ninth plague is darkness. This is a darkness which can be felt. It's a thick darkness. That's how the Bible describes it. A thick darkness in the land of Egypt for three days. No one could even go anywhere or do anything. It was so dark. I mean, isn't that what happened on the cross for three hours? Um, Jesus was taking God's wrath. It involved darkness, supernatural darkness. And uh, had, to, had to feel somewhat like being in a cave. You ever been in a cave and then everybody shuts their lights off and it's like, I can't see my hand. We know it's right in front of your face. That's kind of spooky, right? But that's a picture of life without God, right? Hell is called outer darkness. This world before the sun was created, it was, it was void, it was empty, it was dark. And that's life without God. Tenth plague... The last plague is the death of the firstborn. Um, Egypt, who had murdered many Hebrew infants, remember, would now face judgment on their firstborns. Now, Israel, God's firstborn, was protected from this judgment only if they had the blood of an unblemished lamb applied to their doorposts when the angel of death came through. So, uh, you had to apply the blood. You had to eat the Passover meal in haste. Uh, basically, you had to have your bags packed, ready to go, ready to leave Egypt, and uh, that was done as an act of faith. And this is a reminder that uh, for us that only those who apply the blood of Jesus Christ, the perfect, unblemished Lamb of God, um, you apply His blood to your life through faith, and only then are you spared the wrath of God to come. So... At this point, I just want to think about the purpose for all of the signs and wonders that we call plagues. What's the purpose of these things? You know, and, you know, we might be tempted to look back at the Exodus and think that God is out of his mind. Yeah, that, that God is a big cosmic bully or something like that. And that's, you know, in an era, in an era that we live in, an era of feel-good Christianity, we might think it's surprising to hear that God would judge someone, that God would judge evil. Uh, at least progressive Christianity would see it as a surprise that God is a God of judgment, right? But I, but I warn us that if, if that's our thinking, that we think God's just being a big cosmic bully here, and that it's not right or whatever, and that we think, well, this is just an Old Testament thing, and it's not new, you know, that we're making a God of our own making there. If that's running through our minds, right? Because this is, God's not a cosmic bully, and this is not just an Old Testament thing. Jesus, even in the New Testament, right, pours out his wrath on unrepentant sinners, right? He's, he'll do that. I've got a couple of 
citations there for you to look up if you don't believe me. Uh, Jesus pours out wrath too. Jesus judges his people. Jesus judges the world. And so this is a holy God here. This is not a cosmic bully. This is a holy, righteous God judging sinners. And uh, if you read it closely, you'll see a lot of mercy mixed throughout it as well. Remember, guys, if, if God were completely just, uh, everyone would go to hell. You know, the Israelites aren't any better than the Egyptians, really. They're sinners too, right? They're cut from the same cloth, the same cloth that we were cut from. We're descendants of Adam. We're all sinners. You know, we don't... We sin because we're sinners. We're not sinners because we sin. I mean, this is, we have a sin nature. It's natural for us. Uh, Tony Marita wrote this. He said, if we protest against God's judgment, it's a sign that we have minimized our sin and God's blazing holiness. Right? Sin is treason against the kingdom of God. And, and the punishment, what's the wages of sin? It's death. We all deserve to die, right? For our sins. Uh, just think Mount Sinai. Don't go near it. Don't touch it. You know. And I want to mention this too, though. Uh, to protest against the hardening of Pharaoh's heart by God would likewise be a minimizing of God's sovereignty. I, I have to say that because I, just, I see a lot of people wrestling with that. It's a hard truth to think that God is sovereign, that God would harden a heart. But... Exodus doesn't have to explain it, right? We have all our questions, divine, you know, sovereignty, human responsibility. Exodus just states it unapologetically, guys. That's how we have to accept it. Um, Paul drew on this element from the Exodus in Romans 9 to teach God's the potter. We're the clay. And the clay doesn't get to talk back to the potter, you know? <laughs> it just doesn't. Paul says, God has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. Basically, worship God because he's sovereign. You know, it's a hard truth to accept at times, but it's exactly what Exodus is revealing about God's sovereignty. He wants to reveal this about himself, that he has the power to change the heart. So Exodus is showing us God wants to be known. He wants to be worshipped as the holy, sovereign God that he is. How can we reject one of the the biggest themes that Exodus is trying to teach us. Uh, it's like the whole point. There's no one like him. You can't thwart him. And you're completely dependent upon his grace. Um, God's only objective, though, is not to get Israel out of Egypt. It's to make himself known. And to showcase his power through the, that's going to last you know, a showcase, a display of his power that's going to last throughout all of history, even until this day. Several times as you go throughout this account, um, I highlighted them in my Bible this week. It says several times that you may know, that you may know, that you may know, that you may know. You know, I, that you may know that I'm God. This is why I'm doing these signs and wonders, that you may know, that Israel may know, that Egypt might know, that Pharaoh might know, that Janus and Jambres might know, that the next generation might know, that the Canaanites in the promised land might know and fear God. And so that we would fear God. Uh, so that all the earth would fear God. So he's going to be honored through it all. And, and when you think about it, we should see these, 
signs and wonders as an act of his grace. I mean, for him to reveal himself in such a powerful display so that we can know him, that's awesome. It's an awesome thing. I think, too, you know, only when you have a God that, that's this big, you know, totally other than, totally sovereign, really can you rest in him. You know, it's the, it's the pillow for your soul, like we talked about last week. And, you know, only when you understand God's sovereign are you going to serve God properly. You know, I have to know, I have to be aware that, you know, the, God, the Great Commission doesn't depend on me. God's sovereign. I depend on him to do a work in people's hearts as I share the gospel. So, think about this too. Aren't you more likely to give your life for a God like this? Aren't you more likely to worship a God if he's sovereign? Aren't you more likely to pray to a God who is sovereign, who can actually answer your prayers and act on them, right? If he's not sovereign, why are you praying to him? You know what I'm saying, what I'm getting at here? Guys, and only when you have a God like this, I'm convinced our greatest happiness as life is going to come when we know and we pursue and live for this holy, sovereign God of glory. There's nothing higher we can give our lives, you know, give our lives for than glorifying this God. But let's, let's think about that. Let's think about living for God. Let's balance this, this sovereignty with human responsibility now, right? We, God's going to do his part. But Moses had to do his part too, right? God chose to reveal himself through signs and wonders, but he also chose to do it through representatives, spokesmen, individuals like Moses, and Aaron, these, these ordinary, inadequate people in and of themselves. And so it's interesting that this sovereign and holy God wants everyone to know that he's Yahweh, but he also wants to use us to do it. Isn't that interesting? That he would pick Moses, this complaining, you know, I want to be nice to Moses, but he's just like me, right? I, just complaining despairing, excuse-making guy, right? Why would God want to use him? Well, why would he want to use any of us? You know, he doesn't have to, but he wants to. And what a holy privilege to be used of God. And guys, history doesn't end with Moses, you know? It doesn't end with David. It doesn't end with the prophets. It doesn't end with the apostles. I mean, we looked at Acts 28, right? And we're basically living in Acts 29, right? The story continues. God's still writing history through, through us as we are obedient to God's call on our lives. He's using kings and common people. He's using men. He's using women. He's using the elderly and the children. He's using the rich. He's using the poor. He's using the bold. He's using the timid. But... The question is, are we available for him? Are we willing to say, God, use me? You know, Psalm 90 verse 12 says, Teach us to number our days that we might gain a heart of wisdom. Have you numbered your days recently? Your life on earth is like a few grains of sand and eternity is like the sands of Egypt. 
Have you numbered your days? You know, I don't want to make anybody anxious this morning. But the average life expectancy in the United States is 77 years. 77. So how many years you got left? Maybe. Some of you guys got that beat. Right? But it's a sobering reality how brief life is. James says, what is your life anyway? It's a mist that appears and it's gone, you know, the next day. And you don't know when it's going to end. And so in light of that sobering reality, let's ask ourselves, what am I living for? How am I spending my life? Because, man, I don't know about you, but my life is flashing by, before my eyes. It's just happening all so fast. Life is so much more, guys, than, than living for the weekend. It's more than trying to get through school. I'll serve the Lord once I'm done with school, you know. I'll serve the Lord once I launch my business or once I raise my family and then once my family's out of the house and once I retire, then I'll serve the Lord. Man, don't you want to live for something more than that? Like more than Friday night? I want to live for something more than the weekend. I want a, I want a purpose. I want meaning. I want significance that... that, that gives meaning and purpose to even the most mundane moments of life throughout the week. From the time I get up to the time I go to bed, right? It's all, I can, I, can, I can serve God no matter where I'm at, no matter what I'm doing. And so just consider this morning a purpose that, that goes beyond your normal day-to-day but gives purpose to it, you know? And, and, and consider this morning the possibility that God might have a purpose for your life beyond the day-to-day. Consider this morning that he might call you to go to Columbia. You know what I mean? Or like Jacob did. Consider that he might call you to go into a vocational ministry. If he doesn't, that's fine. Let him use you where you're at. You, you better be faithful where you're at if you're going to get that call. But, you know, consider it. I think about the brevity of life. Because God can use you just like he used Moses to do great things. That's what the Exodus shows us. How much God can accomplish through ordinary men and women who just obey God's heavenly call. Moses heard the call. Moses struggled with it for a while. He kicked against the goads for a while. He fought with his potter, right? (laughs) He fought with the potter, but he eventually responded in obedience, and God equipped him for the task as he carried it out by faith. He wasn't cut from a different superior cloth than us. He was cut from the same cloth. Let's just pray. Lord, thank you so much. Just for revealing yourself to us through the signs and wonders of the Exodus, it is no small act of grace on your part for you to do that. So we thank you even more, uh, Lord, for stooping and condescending to be just speaking to us sinful men that you would want a relationship with us that you would actually become a man in, in, in the person of Jesus Christ and die for our sins the greatest revelation and the revelation of your son how incomprehensible to think that this holy and sovereign God that we've read about in Exodus also took on flesh and became one of us the great I am 
and that you would love us so much that you would die for us. You'd extend so much mercy and grace in our lives. Lord, none of us deserves to, to be here this morning. We all deserve to be zapped, right? But you're merciful and you're gracious and we're thankful for the lives you've given us. I pray that uh, as believers, Lord, we would really live for you. That we'd, we'd number our days, that we'd gain a heart of wisdom and spend our days thinking about the different ways that uh, we can serve you and uh, Lord, make your calling clear, we pray, upon the lives of all your people here. And uh, yeah, we thank you in, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.